It was like the Scriblerius Club, but another one. There was another one called the Kit Kat Club. You say Kit Kat Club, and I instantly think Cabaret. Kit Kat is also a chocolate bar, as is Club. Ooh, it's got of fruit in it. Who the f wants fruit in a I chocolate like, bar? I like a fruit club. There are, there's a mint and an orange one as well. Do you actually like a fruit club, or are you just saying that because you know it's skeezing me out? <laughs> no, I like the fruit club. Oh, you were one of those kids who went trick-or-treating this like an apple? Gee, mister, thanks! <laughs> Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hi everyone, welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, the literature podcast. I'm Abby, and the limey sitting across from me is Daniel, and he is here today to tone me down because I am very angry about the book we're reading. Is it rude to call you a limey? It is actually quite... Is that rude? Offensive. Is it yeah. actually? No, obviously not. More a lemon man. <laughs> yeah. A lemon tree, my dear Watson. Oh. <sighs> Do we have some corrections or, or notes maybe from our last episode on The Great Gatsby. I do. I Proceed. I looked up the Pearly I looked, Kingsley. I looked them up too, actually, but carry on. Yeah, so it's... For those of you who don't know, we talked last time about the Pearly Kings and Queens, which is... What is it? A Cockney thing. Indeed. It's actually a charity that Daniel was making fun of, but that's because he it's, wasn't It's not a charity. Right? It pre precedes that. Yeah, it started out as a charity, a Victorian All charity. Right. It's, I think it's gained autonomy, though. I think it's just like a cultural... Well, whatever, anyway. Cockneys, I was, please write in. I, yes, yeah, please do. Unleash yeah. your vitriol on yeah. Daniel. He deserves it. <laughs> on to the text. What is our text today, Daniel? First of all, we're back in Perfidious Albion. Back safe and sound. The American colonies are well and truly under the jackboot of a beneficent monarch, as they should be. Um, everybody's wearing periwigs and perukes, some at the same time. <laughs> I don't uh, know what a peruke is. People look that up at home. Everybody's loving cash crops and luxury goods and things. Gin and tobacco and sugar and stuff. A single pineapple imported to England cost 150 pounds, or about 28,000 pounds today. Well, anyway, it's the 18th century. We're doing Pamela by... Samuel Richardson. In the running for first novel, isn't it? It is. This is um, a bit of a sort of contentious point. What is the first novel? A lot of people think it's Don Quixote by Cervantes. A lot of people think it was Robinson Crusoe. I mean, uh, th there's there's a Japanese text. Taylor Genji. Yep, that uh, goes back, I think, to what was it, the 11th or 12th century. Yeah. We're not really here to get into that. That's a whole kerfuffle. I don't really care. The usual warnings, we're going to spoil this book for you. 18th century people kind of liked spoiling their own books because it says virtue rewarded so we can anticipate what's going to happen at the end. That's the subtitle anyway. There are a lot of trigger warnings for this book. So we have kidnapping, imprisonment, sexual assault, lots of attempted rape, gaslighting. We're going to say the word rape probably quite a lot because there is much of it attempted in this book. So, you know, just fair warning here. 
So this book was written in 1740 and it was enormously popular, which just makes me despair for the world. To the point that when something good happens to the heroine of this book, Pamela, um, I'm not going to say actually what the good thing is because I don't want to spoil it when I'm about to literally spoil it for you and tell you the story. Apparently all the people in Slough rang out the church bells. I'm going to put a pin in this. I want to come back to this later when we get to that moment because um, I have some thoughts and questions for the good people of Slough. So despite this being really famous, there was an equally big backlash because this book is so sentimental and preachy. And even at the time, people were like, this book is a bit much, especially because it was referenced a lot in sermons. So there were plenty <laughs> of people going, this book is lame. You can imagine like a really nerdy vicar being like, it's a bit like in Pamela. Yeah, I know you're all big fans, and I, you know, I thought I'd incorporate it into my sermon, and everyone be like, "Oh God!" Is that some like religious school? You get the teacher deciding to sit on a chair backwards and being like, "Yeah, exactly." Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there were two books written immediately in response to this book's popularity, and one was H Henry Fielding's *Shamala* and Eliza Haywood's *The Anti-Pamela* or *Feigned Innocence Detected*. Both of those were 1741, so literally the next year they were on it, and they were like, "We cannot let this." stand. This book is awful. That is the great thing about 18th century literature, isn't it? That now you just read a crap book and you'd be like, that's crap. But in the 18th century, they'd be like, so I'm going like to spend hours of my life preparing a concerted riposte and parody. They didn't have Twitter. You had no choice but to write a full novel poking fun at it. Well, you could just trash it in the coffee shop. They had, didn't they have some, there was a coffee shop in London that had a lion's head that you would put, like a statue that you just put kind of bitchy remarks into. Oh, that's, that's like it's Twitter. It was the Twitter of its day. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying things like that all the way through this. Why are you sitting backwards on a chair all of a sudden? <laughs> <laughs> Richardson, after all these parodies, Richardson kept adding bits to Pamela. So I think it's quite a bit longer than it initially was. And he kept like... Christ. That's, we're, we're reading the 1801 edition, aren't we? So This is throwing good money after bad yeah, at yes, this yes. point. Just stop while you're ahead, Richardson. You have all the popularity and, and royalties you could want. Just leave it alone. Yeah. Oh my god, he's the George Lucas of his day. Yes, I think he probably was, yeah. Okay, guys. I cannot put off recapping this book anymore. I'm I'm already slightly at the boiling point, so Daniel, please calm me down if I get a little uh, loud and obnoxious during this. Um, all right. In the words of a friend of mine back home, everybody hang on to your asshole. The novel opens on beautiful 15-year-old Pamela Andrews, who is a servant in this house to this great lady who she's very close to. And the book opens with this lady on her deathbed and telling her handsome 20-something son, Mr. B, whose name we never find out, to take care of all of the servants. And then the lady croaks. And Pamela writes this news to her parents. So this is an example of an epistolary novel. So epistolary basically means any sort of text that's composed of things like letters or diary entries or even things like newspaper clippings. Documents. Yeah, so we, we still have this today. So things like Bridget Jones's Diary, those books, that's an epistolary novel. Um, if you guys have seen the Matt Damon film The Martian that came out a few years back, he tells part of that through a series of vlogs. That's an, an example of epistolary storytelling. So Mr. B, upon his mother's death, says, and Pamela writes this to her parents, he says... Quote, I will take care of you all, my good maidens, and for you, Pamela. And he took me by the hand. Yes, he took me by the hand before them all. 
For my dead mother's sake, I will be a friend to you, and you shall take care of my linen. And by take care of, he clearly means rumple. <laughs> so, Mr. B I mean, then... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's, that's, that's a good one. Though, yeah. So Mr. B starts giving Pamela gifts. He gives her money, and she sends it home to her poor parents. And her parents are a little nervous about this development. And Pamela's like, no, no, guys, it's fine. I checked with the other servants. I checked with our housekeeper, Mrs. Jervis. They all say that it's totally customary when somebody dies for the relatives to give whatever pocket money they have on them to their lady's maid or valet or something like that. And her parents write back. And they, I mean, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm saying they're framing this in a really messed up way. But they're basically like, Pamela, this is a... You know, just just be careful. We know he's a man of the world. He might want things from you that you don't want to provide. Keep in mind that your virginity is, quote, a precious jewel. And they talk about how if she has premarital sex, it'll send their, quote, gray hairs to the grave. Like, you <laughs> assholes are like 36 years old. The way she talks about them, you assume that they're in their 80s or something. They, but aren't they a bit like... You're, a, you're an all-round good egg, though, aren't you, Pamela? So this is all good for you, probably. What, what blessed things are trials and temptations when we have the strength to resist and subdue them? But, like, it's kind of, <laughs> this is all character-building for you, Pamela. Yeah, you know, exactly. You know that you'll, you know, you won't and, and crack. Yeah, and Pamela's like, oh, no, Mr. B is so noble, and he's, you know, he's so handsome, and he, I'm sure his, you know, beauty is indicative of a, of a good soul. And I'm like, Pam, you're giving me a real Ralph Wiggum vibes. It's making me anxious. The gifts start piling up. Mr. B gives Pam Allah some expensive clothes. I think they're his mum's old clothes, aren't they? Mrs. Jervis is like, that's all fine. I got some too. You know, everyone's getting freebies from Mr. Yeah, they B. get some nice suits, basically. Yeah. Then, yeah, he starts giving her more intimate clothing. Just, just picture, you're a 15-year-old servant and some 30-year-old is like, Hey, my mom's bras would look really nice on you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that is what it's like. I just, you know, Mr. B, you can just talk to women, right? You don't need to give them your mother's scanties. Have you have you tried making her laugh? I hear that's quite effective. I mean, you, you haven't seen this bra. <laughs> <laughs> right. So Pamela's flattered but nervous because she's kind of attracted to Mr. B, but recognizes that something funny is afoot. Yeah, well, I mean, we find out sort of the skeezy backstory here very quickly, which is that Pamela started working there when she was 12, and he kind of registered her. He's like, I'm going to keep an eye on her. And now that she's hit 15, she has shot up to the top of his to-do list. And he's, he's obviously been curving on her for a little while, and now mommy is not there to say no. Yeah. It's a weird sentence. Um, yes. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm the <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. The whole thing's <laughs> yeah, weird. Daniel's there like, well, when you put it that way, it sounds weird. <laughs> so Pamela, one day, is hard at work, doing whatever it is she does, and I'm really poodering or whatever, and I really got what she did. Mr. <laughs> B comes up and plants one on her. He kisses her. She kicks off. He keeps going, so she faints. Classic swoon, lady swoon. Mm -hmm. But she remains just conscious enough, it's one of those sort of semi swoons that we've all undergone, <laughs> to realise that he's still kissing her semi-unconscious mouth. So, mm, um, you nasty. It's a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah. The swoon ends, as swoons do. Not one of those, like, you know, life support swoons. <laughs> uh, turn off the life support because the swoon's just going on forever. And she, uh, Pamela's like all 
Cook kind of runs to Mr. Jervis. Mr. Jervis is like, you can stay, you know, in my bedroom from now on. Classic safety in numbers thing. She's just like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay real close to you, Mrs. Jervis. We sleep in the same bed now. <sighs> Queer reading. I don't feel good about this one. Oh. I'll explain myself. In right. Due well, course. yeah, it, it will reveal itself. Yes, uh, it will. So Mr. B is pretty irked, but he doesn't want his staff to start talking about it. So Pamela's like. I've got to get out, but then she's like, well, I was embroidering a waistcoat for Mr. B. Miss, Mrs. Jervis asked me to and everything, so I'll, I'll, I'll wait till I've embroidered this waistcoat. Waistcoat embroidering is the stupidest Yeah, that, that's why, like, device. that device is so dumb. I mean, and what, Mr. B's there in the corner, like, snidely whiplash, you know, tapping his fingers together going, you'll embroider for me only, my mm. angel. Like, what, what is this... There's not a rock-solid plot, so it's, it's clearly just a device to keep the plot ticking over. So, Pamela, who has been assaulted by Mr. B, but has to embroider this waistcoat, despite her parents being like, you need to leave right now, ends up staying there for over a year. How big is this waistcoat? Is I'm my imagining Square B is quite a rotund fellow. Do you? Okay. Yeah, I think it's one of those, like... Hale and hearty. Richard Griffiths. <laughs> oh, the the assaults and insults continue. So there is a ton of back and forth negging in this because Mr. B is really mad that she rejected his advances. So for a whole year, she gets nothing but get out of my house. I hate you, vile servant. No, wait, come back. I love you. And I just want somebody to get me in touch with Samuel Richards' estate because I want to sue them for all the whiplash that he's giving me. Even J.K. Simmons would be like, this is enough. And this whole time, Pamela keeps writing to her parents and telling them all of this stuff. And they're like, Pamela, just leave. Just walk out the door. Talk to your union. <laughs> Get ACAS involved. I think that's what needs, needs to happen here. But Mr. B keeps stealing Pamela's letters and then getting angry with her that she's revealed to her parents that he keeps trying to seduce her. And she's there like, oh, I'm sorry. Did I accidentally make a factually based statement? And then he abuses her and insults her some more. And then does the next logical thing, which is try to seduce her again. So one day, Mr. B bursts into Pamela's room, kisses her, and... Okay, guys, buckle up for this one. He proposes <laughs> that Pamela let him rape her. Real, real uh, interesting construction of uh, consent and rape there. And his rationale is that he'll get all the blame because, you know, he's rich and he's a strong man and she's just a weak 15-year-old girl, and so she'll get all the pity as a victim. And he cites sort of historical cases where he's like, well, in history, that one woman got raped and we all think she's great and her rapist was terrible. That could be you. You could be a star. And Pamela's like, wow, tempting offer, but pass. So despite her rejecting him, his, his great offer, he's like, can... Can I kiss your neck? And she's unsurprisingly like, uh, no. And this is the thing that I don't get about Mr. B because we're told in the novel that he is this sort of very handsome man. He's this young rake. He's seduced all of these women. I, th this is your technique, buddy? Th this guy couldn't seduce anybody. He couldn't bang a drum. Uh, sorry, I'm getting a little worked up here. Anyway, the point is, he he attacks Pamela again, she runs away, and there's actually this genuinely terrifying chase sequence down the corridor where he's always just a step behind her, and he gets so close that he manages to rip off a section of her skirt. And she finally makes it to Mrs. Jervis's, the housekeeper's room that she's sharing, and locks the door behind her. We get an arbitration between Mr. B and Pamela. 
it was going to come to this, the, the industrial tribunal, wasn't it? Inevitably. Mrs. Jervis is there to supervise. So we get this sort of uh, uh, court, courtroom, mock courtroom scene almost, don't we? Mr. B has the following arguments. Number one, that Pamela is making the seduction up and that he's purely being nice in accordance with his mother's wishes. <laughs> Number two, okay, maybe he is trying some dodgy stuff, but it was all just a funny joke. Us women, God, we can't take a joke, yeah, can exactly. we? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Number three, okay, maybe it was actually real, not a joke, like all the best jokes. Uh, <laughs> but it's just because he is in love with her and he would marry her if they were of the same class. Okay, number four, okay, so he wouldn't ever really marry her, but she was asking for it. Just again, I would like to reiterate the whiplash here. I have a personal injury lawyer on speed dial whenever Mr. B talks. And Mrs. Jervis kind of like says, oh don't, it's just boys will be boys and all that, you know. I, I think, this is, this is why I didn't like the queer reading, because I think Mrs. Jervis is in on it. it could, could we talk a little bit about Mr. B's insults? Because he, he just, I mean, the things he says to Pamela are genuinely shocking. But not since Tracy and Hepburn have we had such combative chemistry. <laughs> what the? What is this? It's not like Beatrice and Benedict as well, is it? You know, we've got an example of a rowing, like a will they, won't they rowing couple from like 200 years earlier. Who can give as well as they yeah, can Yeah, exactly, get. which is like, and that's all fun and witty, and this is not like that at all. So after all that nonsense, Pammy finally finishes the waistcoat. Which is a natural end point for the novel, isn't it? Because I was only really in it for the waistcoat. Yeah, Daniel stopped reading at this point, so it's just you and me from, from here on out, friend. I thought it was all just... I thought that was the star. <laughs> but it's not called waistcoats, it's called Pamela. Westcott, as I say. Westcott, yes, yeah. I'm, I'm pronouncing it like an asshole. So Pamela finishes the Westcott, she packs her bags, she says goodbye, and then she doesn't leave because she's waiting for somebody to drive her home, even though her home is easily within walking distance. Mr. B then reveals that his sister, Lady Davers, needs a new maid. So he's like, Pam, my friend, I know you're about to leave my family's employ, but actually my sister has, you know, a position open if you want to go there, right? And this is, he reveals eventually, part of his cunning plan to seduce her because, wait for it, this is gloriously asinine, he wants her, the girl whose bags are packed, who has been begging to leave for a year, to worry about being sent away from him and to pine for him. And Pamela, unsurprisingly, is not actually cut up about this. So she's like, that's a really swell opportunity and all. I just want to go home. I don't know if you've heard, but my parents have a few errant gray hairs, which mean they're near the grave. So that night, as Pam's still waiting for a carriage to bring her home, she and Mrs. Jervis get ready for bed. And Pamela hears something coming from the closet. And she's like, oh, I'm going to check out what that is. And Mrs. Jervis is like, it's just the cat. Get undressed. Get undressed real sexy-like. And Pamela's like, okay, nothing suspicious here. So she does. She starts getting undressed. She keeps hearing sort of noise from the closet. And she goes and checks. And unsurprisingly, it's Mr. B. What was he doing in there? Is this a... Was he... Was he, he was sneezing. Was he, was he masturbating in that closet? That's, that's my question. I mean... I don't know. She, we only mm -hmm. see it from Pamela's point of view. Uh, yeah, well, whatever. If, if, if we had access to Mr. B's diary, no doubt it would contain all the salacious details. But the actual boogeyman is sexier than this doofus. Or bogeyman. I was going to say bogey, please. We're back, we're back on the right side of the Atlantic. <laughs> Pamela throws open the closet door. 
she sees Mr. B, she screams, he screams, Mrs. Jervis screams, and Mrs. Jervis takes a She's like, oh no. Oh, uh, what? Yeah. This is new information. <laughs> so Mrs. Jervis throws a semi-naked Pamela onto the bed and then throws herself on top of Pamela to help cover her modesty and protect her. I'm like, mm-hmm. And Mr. B is like, oh, jeez, everybody quiet down. Then we've probably woken the whole house. Hey, Mrs. Jervis, how about you go upstairs and calm down all the servants that Pamela's no doubt woken up with all of her screaming. And, Selfish. Yeah, and yeah. leave me here alone with, her, with uh, this half-naked 15-year-old. And Mrs. Jervis refuses to leave them alone. So what does Mr. B do? He piles on top of Mrs. Jervis on top of Pamela. Oh, good fun. This is the least <laughs> sexy menage a trois I have ever heard of in my life. Yeah. And yes, we get a queer reading here. Again, I don't feel good about it. But this is the one book where I want nobody to kiss. If you guys uh, go back to our first episode, I talked about how I read books, and I just want everyone to smooch their faces all up against each other. Here, nobody. Nobody deserves it, and I don't want it. So anyway, so we're in this weird dog pile and Pamela faints. They sell this as her virtue and modesty is being so insulted that the shock has sent her into this deep faint. <laughs> Call me crazy, but I mean, also two heavier people are simultaneously tackling her. Richard Griffiths being one of them. <laughs> and she's- <laughs> He's going to be my casting guy now. So Pamela faints so hard, and then I just have a couple of question marks after that in my notes, that Mr. B gets scared and leaves. Oh, There's nothing uh, more frightening than a fainted 15-year-old. Well, I'm just like, do you... He seems to be confused about the issue of rape. He's like, oh, wonderful, no consent, and then she faints, and he's like, that's too much no consent. <laughs> and I'm just like, what's happening? I don't mm, understand. Okay. This, is, this is why this book is so confusing to me, because nobody can... Like, nobody can commit... If you're gonna be evil, have a good time with it and follow through. And then Mr. B gets mad at Mrs. Jervis and fires her, so I'm like, oh, okay, she clearly must not be in on it. But then he immediately changes his mind and rehires her, so I'm like, oh, so is she his, like, stooge? Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. You've just blown this wide open. <laughs> Pamela, very slowly packing up her stuff, isn't she? Before she leaves, Mr. B is like, one more private meeting. <laughs> Pamela's like, yeah, right, that sounds fair enough. Yeah, uh, by the sanctity of the pinky swear, I suppose I, I owe it to you. I, yeah. yeah, I promise I won't assault you. Yeah. He confesses that he loves her and asks her to stay and promises to give Pamela's family £50 a year. Probably Actually, according to inflation, it's like £52 or something. I can tell you how much it is. So a pineapple was £150 or 28000 So how much does a pineapple cost now? No, no, no. That's, that's not how that works, that's is it? Not... <laughs> so that's, a, that's a bad example. What's a what's one third of twenty eight? So it's we're talking like big bucks, not like nine thousand pounds today, right? Which actually isn't that much and, to take but, your fifteen year old daughter. Well, it and changes though, doesn't it? You've got to go on measuringworth.com and they give you the different options. So I love measuringworth.com. Uh, anyway, um, this podcast brought to you by measuringworth.com. Uh, that would ooh. That would mean so much to me if, if we got measuringworth.com to sponsor this. Uh, ooh, sorry, I was thinking about that. I'm all of a flutter. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, it's very good. Um, it's not just pounds. You can do other currencies. Not all of them, but some of them. Uh, Don't be giving away free adverts. You're giving away the milk. Make them buy the cow, yes, friend. Yes, sorry, measuringworth, for all your needs. Um, so, uh, Mr. B 
says, here's, here's a plan, my lady. No, my servant girl. <laughs> Why don't you marry one of my staff? You could therefore be protected from all the men in the world because you, you've seen what I'm like. All the other men will be like that too. We're all of a piece. So just marry one of my servants and I'll be able to like, you'll be under the safety, the purview of me and my household. She's like, can I consult my parents? And I'm like, Pamela, what do you think they're going to say? So Pamela is going to go home, consult her parents. She finally, finally gets into a coach. Except, of course there's an except. Mr. B has secretly instructed the coachman to just drive her to his other estate instead where he can lock her up. I guess in the spirit of COVID lockdowns, I'm glad she's got out of the house. But um, halfway to the other place, when Pamela's kind of like, are we going in the right direction? The coachman gives Pamela a letter from Shout Mr. Shout cut. He's like, that is me. Carry on. <laughs> he gives her a letter from Mr. B. And the letter says, hey, dummy, I kidnapped you. Lol. Hope this letter finds you well. <laughs> and so Pamela reaches the other estate and is delivered into the hands of the super evil housekeeper, Mrs. Jukes. And she says that she's going to keep a watch over Pamela and sleep in her room and just lock her up until she's reached a sufficient level of Stockholm Syndrome. Pamela actually, for once, has a good idea. This is an important plot point. Remember this for later. Okay. She convinces Mrs. Jukes to give her a bunch of paper and ink because she likes writing. And Mrs. Jukes is like, look, I have all the servants completely under my influence. Nobody is going to deliver a letter for you, so it's not going to do any harm. So sure, if it keeps you quiet, have all the paper and ink and pens you want. And Pamela's like, this is great because at some point I will convince somebody, I will find somebody to deliver a letter to my parents telling them where I am and that I've been kidnapped. So I'm going to hide all these supplies all over the house for the, when the day comes. I need to, I need to guarantee that I have those supplies to hand. And I'm like, Pamela, that is a great idea. Let's see where this plot thread goes, shall we? First of all, we get the description of Mrs. Jukes. Oh, do it, which yes. Which is quite a funny bit, I think. Now I will give you a picture of this wretch. She is a broad, squat, pursy, fat thing. Quite ugly, if any human can be so called. About 40 years old. She has a huge hand and an <laughs> arm as thick. I never saw such a thick arm in my life. Her nose is flat and crooked, and her brows grow down over her eyes. A dead, spiteful, grey, goggling eye, and her face is flat and broad. Blah, 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 blah. You know, you see, it just goes on and on like that. Yeah. Britain's own Ron Perlman. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, he, right, that's, that's my casting for that. So she meets Mr. Williams, the chaplain, who is slated to be her husband. And he's sort of uh, framed as the potential romantic lead, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, the hot priest always spices things up. I like this Mr. Williams. He's he's serving me thorn birds. He's giving me flea bag. He's giving me those Vatican calendars full of hot priests. I would say he's Anglican as well, so there's nothing dodgy, you know, nothing illegal about, not illegal, but nothing against the rules about him marrying. So but I, I just like, just pile, nice and legal. <laughs> pile upon me your comeliest men of the cloth. I'm here for that. That's an angle I enjoy. Pamela keeps having a little, like, chats with Mr. Williams when Mrs. Duke's not looking and tells him what the situation is, that she's a prisoner and they kind of start conspiring and she is going to leave her letters for um, him in a secret place. And furtive pe pen pals is good. Yes, furtive pen pals, yes. Furtive pen pals, always sexy, that's, that's a... Furtive pen pals, furtive pen pals, furtive pen pals. I'm sorry, I am trying to find the tiniest hint of a silver lining and I think this is it. Okay, well... It's it, it's done now, silver lining yeah, is done. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Mrs. Jukes, however, she tightens the screws a bit, 
and Pamela decides to sort of put on the old Stockholm Syndrome. I mean, this is just being a good hostage 101. I'd start doing that from day one of just being like, you've just broken my spirit. I'll be good. I wouldn't do that. Oh, I will not go gentle. No, do I'm t I obviously don't actually, but pretend to. Well, time. you can write in and say what the best advice is for this sort of situation. Yeah. Do you, do you pretend to yes. have Stockholm or do you keep kicking off? Is it your duty to resist? But obviously they'll, they'll loosen their grip and let you have more freedom where you can escape if you just pretend for a little bit. But if you're distracting them all the time because they're having to keep their eye on you, then that's reducing the capacity of the Mr. B enterprise. But that makes no sense because then it's just going to tighten the noose around you. Uh, there's only so much they can do. Uh-huh. Okay, anyway, whatever. So Pamela and, and Mr. Williams are planning an escape. I think they make a big glider, don't they? But then they realise that aircraft hadn't been invented yet, so that's out of the window. There's a big Rube's Goldberg device. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Heath Robinson machine, I think you'll find. Williams has disappeared. Pamela's naturally a bit perturbed. Yeah, that's not a great sign if your co-conspirator just mysteriously disappears one day. Yeah. <laughs> Pamela gets a letter from Mr. B. So it's addressed to her, but he's mixed it up. He was addressing it to Mrs. Duke's fatal oh. error. I think this was deliberate. I think because he's realising he's softening to her, but he has to work his way down from being a total wrong and Really? So I'm actually very touched by this first step. Um, <laughs> oh, the man is touched by this. Interesting. <laughs> it's just classic courtship stuff. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. Yeah. Well, all of the pickup artists recommend this sort of thing. I'd um, love to think of you on their forums taking diligent notes. <laughs> the letter, in the letter to Mrs. Jukes, he admits, number one, that he has found out about Pamela's escape plan. Item the second, that he has thrown Williams in jail. What is he guilty of here exactly? Uh, well, if you're the squire, then you can, you can just, just, you know, throw people in whatever... Thing you want. But you, you have to come up with some charges. What, like cheating at croquet or um, actually believing in religion? I'm, I'm pronounced cricket. <laughs> I, I'm Catholic. I don't know what uh, vicars are not allowed to do. So, he also says that he hates Pamela. Oh no. Yeah, so that's a big shock. And there, this, is, this is the bit that is possibly the most upsetting in the book. It's a super trigger warning bit. He basically says, and this this is why I want, actually, maybe it's good to remember this because he is not a redeemable man. This, this Mr. B is not redeemable. So he says he now hates Pamela and instead of love raping her like he was going to do, he's now going to hate rape her. What? Mm. Is, is this man on roids? What is happening? Also, okay. why are you writing that to your employee? Aside from all of the obvious egregiousness of it. <laughs> This is a weird thing to... Oh, Mrs. Jukes, here's one of that from my boss. Ooh, uh. Yeah, my office manager needs to yeah, know about Exactly, it. yeah. Ooh, that's horrible. Um, and number four, there's a bit of fun. <laughs> After Co that, we were, we're having such a good time yeah. already. Colbrand. Yeah, you heard me. Colbrand. <laughs> the evil, ugly Swiss servant. No relation to Frankenstein. Is coming to stay at his other house to guard... Pamela and we'll be joining them in a few weeks. Let's just briefly, because I love the Colbrand description as well, let's just have a bit of Colbrand right now. He is a giant of a man for stature, 
taller by a good deal than Harry Mollage in your neighbourhood, and large-boned and scraggy, and has a hand I never saw such a one in me life. He has great staring eyes, like a bull's, that frightened me so. Vast jawbones sticking out, eyebrows hanging over his eyes, two great scars upon his forehead, and one on his left cheek. Blubber lips, long <laughs> yellow teeth, which his lips hardly cover, even when he's silent. So then, uh, Are you sure he's not related to Frankenstein? Because you've just described Frankenstein's monster. That's right. what you've just described. Uh, it's all the shed you did us, the... Uh, Richardson, Shelley, Shelley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Pamela's realized is it the fan. There's a, also there's a quite a funny bit here, isn't there, where she's like, as I continue writing here, when I ought to act, that will show you my strange irresolution and how I am distressed between my hopes and my fears. Because readers were like, she's in deep shite. Why is she not, why is she just like, well, I've got to keep my diary. This, this is like when people were watching Cloverfield and going, who would hang on to the camera yeah, that exactly. long? So Pamela finally decides to get her button gear and she's like, okay, I figured out a plan. I'm going to steal a key to the garden door and what I'm going to do is I'm going to climb out my window at night when Mrs. Jukes is asleep. I'm going to take my petticoat and my handkerchief and throw them in the garden pond so when they come looking for me, they're going to think that I've drowned myself. And while they're busy dragging the pond for my body, it'll buy me some time to run off. I gotta be honest, Pam, that's a real Hail Mary. Because, A of all, why would your petticoat come off? Handkerchief? Yes. Okay, fine. But your petticoat is weighed down under other layers of clothing tied firmly about your waist. Uh, why would that be? Throw your hat off. Throw, throw your shoes or something. Petticoat makes no sense to me. Thanks for explaining a petticoat as well. You're welcome. I so, could see. Yeah. I could see yeah. you didn't know. I thought it was like a little coat. <laughs> Two is a garden pond big enough to even buy you much time? It's not a lake we're talking about here. At most, it's a. You pond. haven't seen this pond. And three, you've been there now for quite a while. Why didn't you steal the garden key before if you've known about it this whole time? Twas on the kitchen, you know, windowsill, but I never thought to... You never thought, yeah. Uh, yeah, Pamela, you uh, never thought. Uh. Everything goes according to plan. You know, she throws her petticoat in the, in the pond, she leaves, until she tries to unlock the garden door. And then she realizes somewhere along the line, they've changed the lock. And I'm like, Pamela, this is why you don't wait. So... Perfectly good petticoat ruined. <laughs> Despite the fact that she knows that there is a ladder somewhere on the property in one of the outbuildings that she's near, she decides, eh, I'm not going to bother to look for it. I'm going to try to climb the garden wall on my own. And of course, she picks the most obviously structurally unstable part of the wall, so some loose bricks fall and hit her on the head, unfortunately not killing her. So she sort of stumbles away dazed. She's not actually, they make, a, they make a point of saying she's not actually hurt. And ultimately she just curls up next to a pile of wood and waits to be found. Pamela, take the wood, unstack it, walk it over to the garden wall, restack it, and climb over! I mean, it's quite hard work, isn't it? I mean, I, you haven't seen this pile. I have stacked wood my entire life! It's not that difficult! Well, I haven't. If she, maybe thought, power isn't if she thought she could parkour her way up a sheer brick wall, it can't be that tall, can it? I'm sorry, but who are we supposed to be rooting for in this story? Because right now I'm rooting for the brick. <laughs> just like 
You know there's a ladder there somewhere in one of these outbuildings. There's a pile of wood you could move. And instead she's just like, oh, no, let's get sleep. Well. She's concussed. No, you shouldn't. not supposed to sleep when you're concussed though, are you? <laughs> so the next morning, Mrs. Jukes wakes up, discovers Pamela's gone, all hell breaks loose, and the search party goes out looking for her. They stumble across her petticoat in the pond and think she's drowned. Huh, I guess that plan would have worked. It turns out you only uh, need your plan to be slightly yeah, less Utah, dumb yeah. than, the, than the people you need to believe. Two cheers for Pamela. <laughs> now, don't don't start siding with Pamela against Two me. Two cheers. Daniel. It's not the full three. Give her one cheer. I will give... All right, okay. Put a sound effect in. <laughs> Maybe I'll just... Uh, I'll loop myself doing that horrible <laughs> noise. And then later we can uh, sell that to Korea as a dance mix, put a house beat under it. Great. So they start dragging... They export pop, don't they? They don't import it. They'll import this right, one. Okay, right, yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine the dance hit of the summer? Okay. So they start dragging the pond for her body, assuming she's killed herself, but then almost immediately a maid finds Pamela just sort of mewling to herself in an outbuilding, somehow inexplicably near death, despite the fact that they explicitly say the brick did not give her a serious wound. I don't know what could be killing her. It was dangerous wood. She slept next to some quite dangerous wood. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Poison! Quick, quick, God, I wish I were better at improvising dangerous types of wood. I really gotta take that class at BCU. <laughs> so she's carried back to the estate, and Mr. B hears about all of this, and he gets really pissed off, and he decides to punish Pamela by making her marry the ugly Swiss guy. Colbrand. Cold. Can I just call him the ugly Swiss guy? I don't want to learn names today. Okay. And Mr. B wants Mr. Williams to perform the ceremony as a, as a uh, sort of... Oh my god, this guy won't stop it. As a yeah, double yeah, F.U. Yeah. See, again, Mr. Williams set up as the romantic lead. Mr. B sees it. He knows. He knows. Once Pamela is married to someone, he'll pay the husbands for sexual rights to Pamela on the night of the marriage. Could you have said that more creepily? His, he's imagining that Pamela's so virtuous that she'll be more scared of disobeying her husband than she would be scared of adultery. That seems like a sort of a double bind type thing there. I don't <laughs> quite, that doesn't really make any sense, just, does it? I'm just thinking of the logic of this plan tonight on a very special The Bachelor. <laughs> <laughs> Colbrand's like, actually, I'm already married. Swiss bigamy, the best kind of bigamy. Uh, so that just, it just all kind of collapses, doesn't it? It doesn't go anywhere. Mr. B decides to sort of stop the whole thing. Yeah, I love a good convoluted seduction that misfires at every step. I'm enthralled. How about you? Yeah, I think this is where I started tuning out. Um, <laughs> I think it was after the Colbrand's lips were my last... Uh, <laughs> bit so um you're really missing that waistcoat uh, yeah, exactly yeah we have this uh, bit where mr b's like he presents Pamela a contract this was actually a good bit too actually. yeah <laughs> oh, i'm back i enjoyed it's this always, yeah yeah it's, it's not it's no waistcoat it, but it's they, close they drew you back uh, like i think i've got out they <laughs> uh drag me back so he's got a contract for pamela and it's like mr b will make pamela his mistress and that after a grace period of a year he may marry her if the mistressing is to his satisfaction. God, Pamela's such a waste of this guy's time. I wish somebody would offer me that. I like jewels and mixed securities. Stupid. <laughs> so 
Despite the fact that contracts are real sexy. Bring up the old, uh... Somehow Pamela manages to hold firm and, and she refuses despite this very erotic legal document. And what a shock. Mr. B gets mad at her again. You know what they say. If at first you don't succeed, try screaming into a woman's face yet again. <laughs> so we get yet another sort of repetitive scene. So this whole book is just wheel spinning the same thing over and over and over again. Here's a scene that's going to sound familiar. The people of Slough liked it. We'll get to that. I'm just saying in general. <laughs> so, you know, there's all of this building up stuff like sweet, sweet candy <laughs> to the people of the Thames Valley. <laughs> so Pamela goes to bed that night. Mrs. Jukes is there because she's, you know, sleep forced to sleep with, with uh, Pamela. And again, you know, sound familiar. We've seen this scene before. But this time, there's a maid who's gotten drunk and fallen asleep in a chair in the corner with her apron up over her head. Interesting curveball. She's got very, very, very hairy legs. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Jukes refuses to wake the maid and tells Pamela to get undressed real sexily and to tell her things, specifically compromising things. Things that would be good to blackmail you with later. What's, what's your mother's maiden name? Uh, you know, what time were <laughs> you What's your social in? security yeah. number? Pamela agrees, not thinking anything sounds off. This all sounds super legit. But she's like, but I don't have anything compromising to say. And what a surprise, the maid is actually Mr. B in drag, and he watches Pamela get all naked, and when she finally gets into bed, he leaps up and jumps on her, screaming, quote, Now, Pamela, is the time of reckoning come that I have threatened. Okay, so with this scene, I actually looked up how old Samuel Richardson was when he wrote this. He was apparently Eight. 51. Oh. I knew it was either going to be really low or quite high. <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that because I don't think a 51-year-old wrote this. I think a 14-year-old chronic masturbator wrote this scene. <laughs> this is... You can be a 51-year-old chronic masturbator. <laughs> <laughs> I just... No, it's for just the defense of you being like, hey, you can be a chronic masturbator at any age. <laughs> <laughs> Pamela faints again because she doesn't really do much else and it scares him so once again he doesn't do anything but then when she wakes up he tries to gaslight her into thinking that he meant her no harm or insult and at this point even actual literal satan would be like would you calm down i don't know how you're enjoying being caught in this gothic cul-de-sac um, are, are you having a good time no you feeling good about it's it sweet how the swooning frightens him as well if i if i just spontaneously laid down right here would you get scared Probably actually. Pamela and Mrs. Jukes go for a bit of a stroll after all that excitement and come across a gypsy woman who does the old fortune telling bit. Mm -hmm. The gypsy gives Pamela a secret note from an anonymous friend. It says, Mr. B plans to marry her in a couple of days, but it will be a fake clergyman. <gasps> It'll just be like a broom with a wig on it. Or the wedding will be fake. It's a fraudulent wedding. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry. How much better would this book be if Pamela, you know how like in prison, when people go to prison for like something really minor and then they learn to be really good criminals? Mm. Pamela's basically in prison right now. Yes. Wouldn't it be such a better book if she had like learned all their tricks and tips and improved on them? And so she's like, all right. I'll go through this marriage, but I'm gonna yeah. double cross you that and get a real yeah. clergyman. That would be really good. But you know me, Daniel. You know I love a, a good reverse grift. God 
damn it, that would be a better book. Instead of Pamela Virtue Rewarded, it would be Pamela Vice Learned. Yes! Uh, no, that would be really good. Mr. B, meanwhile, finds pens and papers all over the place and realizes that Pamela's been hiding them. Oh uh, yeah, that, that plot point that we meant yeah, to come back to, back. right? Yeah. He's like, tell, them where they, tell me where they all are. If you don't, I will press you to death. Which is how they used to punish people who refused to testify. Yes, I, but I love this because Pamela is like, press me to death? Do what you gotta do, friend. How, how amazing would that be though? Because she's like, I'm gonna Giles Corey my way out of that book. And then she like, you know, puts on some sunglasses and flips off Mr. B as she's pressed under more and more housekeepers. Mm. That would be a baller way to end this book. So he's like, if you don't tell me where the pens are, and indeed papers, I will search the house and I'll start by strip searching you. So she immediately buckles. <laughs> oh uh, no! Buckles at the, at the mention of buckles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, press me to death. Fine. You know, look on, under my skirt. That's that's. Well, that's the misogyny stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but this is quite a misogynistic book. What? Yeah. Oh, thank you, man, that's for that's telling right. me. Yeah. <laughs> In the end, though, he just kind of like that just doesn't go anywhere, and he he lets her keep the notes. We have this whole setup about this pen and ink and paper subplot and it goes nowhere. We've been reading this book for what, 25 years? Yeah. Every page, I think, same shit, different day. Nothing happens. Nothing has happened in this book except she's gone from one house to the other. It'd be good if the book just stopped here because he'd like said, well, that's it, you're not writing anymore. And you said like a sort of like, you know, this is my last, no, and then like, <laughs> <laughs> So, so Mr. B ends up finding her whole memoir and all of her letters that she's been writing, even though he's been stealing that the whole, like the whole year she was living in his house and he's stole her letters consistently the whole time. Now, apparently reading them all together, it melts his heart and he decides, I'm going to be really respectful of, of her from now on and not attempt to assault her. That is a very low bar to clear that you couldn't limbo under that bar. And he, he, okay, okay, right, hold on, I need to take a deep breath before this next bit. Okay, so Mr. B manages to not attempt to rape her for a couple of days, and he no longer lets Mrs. Jukes beat the shit out of her. So Pamela's response is to fall in love with him. F*** this book in the ear! I'm so angry at this! Just, can, can we remember? Go, go back to all the times I told you, remember this, he is irredeemable. Mm. And now, all of a sudden, despite hunky Mr. Williams being still in jail or whatever, she falls in love with this guy? So, because she now loves him, he says that she can go home to her parents and he puts her in a carriage and she gets halfway home and once again, like sort of little neat little bookends on either side the driver gives her a note written by mr b and he says i feel a horrible sickness coming over me because of your departure and i'm probably going to get a brain fever and die farewell nice. sweet pamela yeah. all this all this pickup line in the book <laughs> brain feel, fever brain and fever, die yeah, yeah. <laughs> i wouldn't recommend using that in bars in a global pandemic but follow your bliss people yeah. so pamela reads this note, goes, aww, and she turns around, and she goes back. And at this point, I want to kidnap Pamela and throw a bag over her head and dump her over the county line just so she can get away from this ass. So she goes home because she's like, I can really fix him. And I'm like, <laughs> bitch, make him worse. Marry him and ruin his credit. Decorate his mansion old cottage core. That's what I would do. Make his life a living nightmare. 
I would do a sort of like um, Rorschach and Watchmen when he goes to prison and people try to harass him and he's like, oh no, you think I'm stuck in here with you? You're stuck in here with me. That's what I would do if I was Pamela. I would paint his teeth in the night. That'd be a bit weird, wouldn't it? You'd be like, Whoa. <laughs> So even, even Mrs. Jukes is incredulous that Pamela came back. And Come on, love. <laughs> Come on. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and Mr. B says, oh, Pamela, you've earned my trust, and you can, you can take the carriage whenever you want. You can go out alone, because I know you'll always come back. And I'm like, yeah, because she's a homing pigeon for bullshit. And so he, he also reveals to Pamela at this point that his sister... Lady Davis. ...wrote him a letter saying she's she's heard he's been rather kidnappy and rapey of late that's not great for your reputation and she's like well you certainly could never marry pamela so it's probably best for all concerned just just let her go you know you have plenty of society dames to mess around with and he says that he's rejected his sister's snobbery and he is gonna marry pamela just like the gypsy warned and pamela wonders if this is a trick because she has somebody say this exact plan is going to be a trick. But instead, she goes on this nauseating bender, telling him all of the wonderful things she's going to do as his wife. Love conquers all, Daniel. Well, we get the sort of you complete me uh, bit, don't we, where she says... It's, but but, it's, it's a trick! It's she a goes, trick! She goes, You, sir, are the only man living my father accepted who was ever more than indifferent to me. Mr. Williams, well, excuse loads of people, me. Loads of men have spoken to her. Excuse me. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just happy to be paid attention. Yeah. Any attention is good yeah. attention. Pamela, get therapy. Yeah, get a grip. Have I screamed get therapy in every episode? I think I probably have. Uh, many of them, I think. This is uh, uh, this is just me howling into the void. This is advice screamed at you well, to people who can't hear. This is a productive use of my time. Pamela confronts Mr. B. Uh, with the letter from the gypsy and asks if it, the w upcoming nuptials are indeed a trick. <laughs> Do you think he's going to tell her the truth? Well, he's turned a new leaf. He's a nice guy now. Oh, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Um, keep it up. And he realizes that it's in his lawyer's handwriting and gets pretty irate. I get that. I, that's kind of legit, though, because client privilege. So he then he's like, well, I did consider planning a fake wedding, uh, but now we're having a real wedding, so don't worry about that. Yeah, no the cake's not made of uh, balsa wood. <laughs> uh, it's a real cake. Yeah, no need to fact check. This wedding's a genuine article. Trust me, Pammy. I've got a stellar track record. <laughs> so he buys a lot of nice clothes and says, we're going to have a, pri a small private ceremony. Red flag! Yeah. Red flags! <laughs> She says, oh, can, might we marry in a church? And he says, no. Red flag! Yeah. She then asks if she can tell her mum and dad. He says, yes, but only if they don't tell anyone else about it. Semaphore! Semaphore in red! Pamela's parents read the letters and think that she's been forced to write them. But Mr. B comes in and says, I assure you that your daughter is entirely, you know, up for it. I have tons of money. You can believe me, you know. And they're like... Uh, yeah. I was begging yeah. your pardon, master. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Pamela is still pretty weird, isn't she? She still like helps out uh, as in the servant -y capacity and still insists on calling Mr. B master. <sighs> and he's all like, please, Pamela, stop calling me master. And she's like, no, tis, tis my duty. So. Do you think he ever revealed his name to her at any point? He's like, honey, my name's Bryce. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we get a bit more of Mr. B reading Pam's journals and feeling guilty, and she says, I wish, sir, you had had better entertainment. 
which I think, you know, was a little shout out to the readers as well. You know. <laughs> Richardson knows. Yeah, yeah. He knows what he's put us through. Mr. Williams comes in and does the ceremony. All's good. He's a real, he's a bona fide vicar or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the wedding takes place. Then they're going to go home, you know, for the uh, inevitable wedding night. But Mr. B's aristocratic pals show up and demand entertainment in that sort of roistering way that 18th century rakish types did. Okay, can I just talk you guys through my process of reading this book for the first time? Because this book is called Virtue Rewarded. We have this huge setup here of this is a fake wedding. You cannot trust this guy. So I'm thinking, even though Mr. Williams did the ceremony, there's going to be some sort of technicality, which means that they're not actually married. And this is the author protecting Pamela with these aristocratic buddies showing up for the wedding night to distract them. So I'm like, oh good, she thinks they're really married. They're not. The fact that his friends turn up out of the blue the first time this has ever happened is on their wedding night. Oh good, they're not going to be able to have sex. Except... I don't know, they have an arm wrestling contest or whatever it is blokes do together. I don't know. I don't have any friends. And then they go home and then Pamela and Mr. B indeed consummate their uh, marriage. So, but this book is subtitled, so we're all on the same page, Virtue Rewarded, correct? Yes. And they have sex. Yeah. So therefore, they must be genuinely married, correct? Uh, yeah. So this whole gypsy subplot came to nothing. Yeah. What you're telling me is that the plot doesn't thicken. Tremendous. And and Pamela is happy to marry her kidnapper and multiple attempted rapist. This this is a happy turn of events, right? Well, the, In, the people of Slough certainly thought so. Outstanding. Outstanding, friend. My my blood is boiling itself dry today. And yeah, this this is the bit that I was alluding to at the beginning, because apparently when Pamela and Mr. B got married, despite me still going, I don't believe this marriage is genuine, apparently the good people of Slough rang out their church bells to celebrate Pamela nabbing herself a big fish. I, I just, I, okay, okay. So, hold on, I need, I'm gonna take a breath. Pamela and Mr. B are genuinely married and they are genuinely happy with it for a while. Although the, I, the, I take one small consolation that every fight they have going forward in their married life is gonna be like, this isn't about taking out the trash at all, is it? <laughs> this is about the kidnapping again, isn't it? <laughs> the when years you, torment. Yeah, when are you gonna get over it? <laughs> you, see, you think it's Splitsville for Pam and B? I hope so, I hope she starts up her own establishment in, and just boinks all of her young hot footmen and Mr. Williams for good measure. Hot foot. Carry on. Thank you for that contribution. Okay, so the only flaw in their marriage is that Mr. B's sister starts harassing Pamela for being too poor and unworthy to join their family. Lady Davers. <laughs> Do, is, is her name crucial to the reason? I don't know. Lady Davers calls Mrs. Duke's fat face. <laughs> I enjoyed that bit for some reason. Like the clothing brand. Um, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Do you think that whoever started fat face read this and went, that's a great... Thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, My, ooh, I'm thinking of setting up a sort of... Shop, clothing shop. I'll, I'll, I'll fill it the uh, 18th century classics. Mrs. What is it? Davers? Lady Davers. You said this so many times and I refuse to listen to you. Mrs. Davers tells Pamela that Mr. B seduced another girl before and she <laughs> had a baby. I know, there's, a, there's an illegitimate child out also there. Also called Pamela. No, I made that up. Uh, sorry. Look at horror I, on your face. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, how did I forget this? Did I block it? Did I... 
did I send myself to sleep as a sort of self-defense His mother's mechanism? called Pamela as well. He's like Ron Swanson. <laughs> <laughs> Pamela wins the sister over through her good nature and her virtue. Gross. There are these slightly bitchy uh, retinue. Mrs. Davis has that bitchy retinue that will kind of, they'll go like, you look like you'd be called Melissa. They're all like, <laughs> they're all like that, aren't they? Uh, that's quite a funny bit. Pamela and Mr. B visit his illegitimate child and they take in the kid and they're this big happy family. Oh, this is the home that kidnapping built. And they live happily ever after. And what is this book? This is Cinderella meets old boy. It's just how, how, oh, how is this the final draft of the book? Like we're reading the 1801 version <laughs> yes. and this is, is your final yeah. draft? Are you? Are you kidding me with this? I am I am having an out-of-body experience. My soul is up on the ceiling, looking down on us. Mm. I hope you're happy. The analysis, anyway. Okay, so. well, first of all, I'm going to ask you for the analysis bit. Not what you think, but how do you feel? Because this was an emotional roller coaster for well, me. I can tell, yeah. I was more quite bored. <laughs> I, I really hate that people say that they're bored by books, but I was bored by this. Okay. That's fine. That's a fair critique. I liked it initially, the letters, but as you, as we've discussed, the plot has so many of these stupid cul-de-sacs. I need to lay down in a dark room for a while. I feel like hating this book is the purest feeling I have ever known. Nobody in this book was a himbo. I want a refund. Could, whatever his name is, Mr. <laughs> Mr. 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 B, Mr. could he not be a... I think it's that's denigrating the name himbo. Himbo has a sweetness to it. I suppose, yeah. Even, what about even, Mr. Williams? Uh, we don't see enough His himbosity is not uh, clarified to the sufficient degree. Uh. Foghorn Leghorn, what are you doing here? <laughs> Should we do casting? Please. I'm not going to lie to you. I prayed on this one a while. So, if this were made today, I think this would be some sort of incredibly serious dramatic vehicle for Adam Driver but not on my watch Satan I've never been less interested in seeing a man's face in my life than when I look at Adam Driver. He's like the horrible Mr. B is like the horrible boyfriend in No, I, that's why I'm yeah. saying it would be a, it's a perfect vehicle for him but I don't want that movie so are you ready for me making this tolerable and even enjoyable because I think I've outdone myself this week okay if you say so you gotta make it camp for a modern audience. Right. I want an early, late 80s, early 90s production. Hmm. John Waters, Nicolas Cage as Mr. B, Winona Ryder uh, as Pamela, right, yeah. Divine as Mrs. Jukes, just camp that sh all to hell, make it disgusting, make it revolting, make it a musical. That is pretty good, actually. Uh, that's, you have outdone yourself. <laughs> I hate to say it, but yeah, you have. Blows my Richard Griffiths, Griffiths out of the water. I'm quite proud of that. Yeah, it's very good, yeah. It's the only thing that could redeem this book. I exactly. Think. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I was thinking, like, how could we make this? Because you don't want a straight version of this. It wouldn't, first of all, it wouldn't work. Secondly, there would be a miserable watch. The sort of sickening morality of it yeah. could only be played for grotesquery yeah. in the present day as well. So, that's, yeah, that's really good. I just, when I was reading it, I just kept imagining, did you ever watch a bit of Sunday Night Serial Territory? Did you ever watch Paul Dark? Paul Dark? Yeah. Not Paul Dark. You're saying, oh, sorry, I feel like we're saying two different words. Paul Dark, yeah. If you're in the Cornish, you stress I'm the sorry. second syllable. 
I'm I'm so sorry. Well, anyway, there's that horrible uh, vicar in that that's also kind of funny, but he's like really, really horrible. Is that the is that the show with the Hobbit with the abs? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I watched an episode and then stopped. No, well, I mean, I wouldn't. His abs were too much. I can't. I, <laughs> well, I, I don't want to look at that. It's really weird because the vicar, there's this vicar who marries this woman and he's just like a really horrible husband, and it's not. It's horrible, but he's really funny. <laughs> Like to okay. look at, and the way he acts is funny. <laughs> so it's kind of you don't know. It leaves you with this funny feeling. Like, is this meant to be funny, or is this meant to be disturbing? Yeah, th- this book is a real uh, sort of emotional roller coaster. In that you're you, you're left at going, what am I supposed to be feeling? Mm. Unless you're from Slough, in which case your feelings are very clear and they're all good. Yeah. So good. maybe they're ringing the church bells as like an emergency. <laughs> Rescue, somebody needs to rescue Pamela. So, yeah, I mean, class is so much at the fore of this novel. And Richardson was actually a little bit lower class than the typical author and reader of the day, which I found really interesting. So most most authors and readers were middle class or upper class. Richardson was sort of slightly below that, artisanal class. That's kind of middle class, though, isn't it? Like, Defoe was also like a sort of artisanal guy, wasn't he? But in the version I have, they were talking about how Richardson was really sort of aspiring to better himself out of the life he grew into. That was the thing that he kept changing, that he kept getting stuff about the upper classes wrong, and when they read, when aristocrats read the book, they were like, that's wrong. And so that's one of the other big things that he made revisions to and later. But I think there's a real tension here between sort of what we owe society and the hierarchy. Like, he, he is actually very respectful of class divisions, but then versus what we owe ourselves, because, you know, Pamela's always caught between that rock and a hard place of, well, he's my master and I have to obey him, but he is telling me to do something that goes against my personal wants and my personal virtue and morals. And that's a really interesting tension as we're sort of we're the middle classes are growing at this point like the, mm. there is a there is a sort of shift happening Pamela herself talks about class stuff doesn't she like there's that bit where she talks about a philosopher who looked at a king's skull and a slave's skull and said they look the same yeah so she is she is exploring these issues also there's that funny bit at the end when she and all the aristocrats play whist and they say like do you notice that the noble ace no the ignoble ace uh, dominates over the king and the queen and the jack you know so you know that's like the commoners or the you know that's yeah. the that's the merry constitution of england not not the aristocracy so they, they do explore this stuff yeah I mean, social mobility is not anti-class is it it's pro-class it's just saying that i should be in a higher one and that's the sort of message of this book isn't it yeah nobody's talking about social mobility hoping that they go down a class are well. they that's the stereotype yeah. isn't it yeah, yeah. it, it it is ultimately, I think, about class mobility, but weirdly all I kept thinking is, and yet Pamela is sleeping her way to the bottom <laughs> somehow. Mm. What about gender and sexuality? Because the, one of the reasons why I hate this book so much, I've already alluded to that before with the chronic masturbator joke, is that I think that this book is written in bad faith. Yeah, kind of pornographic. Yeah, it's yeah. somebody who is or claiming, to, claiming yeah. to write this as a sort of virtuous tract of how young ladies should behave and I'm like actually what you're writing is a sexy young woman being sexually terrorized over and over again for our sort of morbid titillation or something Mm -hmm. this is why I don't like it because it feels incredibly dishonest and we're all in on it but nobody wants to say it but it has also been read as a feminist text because of the sort of context of the of the day it's told in Pamela's voice. It's focused on her emotions and she's her constant refusal to be bullied into doing something she doesn't want to do. 
Yeah. And that, that is actually worth noting. I suppose her only real agency is not doing things rather than doing things, though, you know, if you know what I mean. Like, she yeah. doesn't have much. But yeah, I can see that you could say that. There are little kind of, you know, there's a bit about double standards, isn't there, where they're like, men complain of women's reserves, yet they slight them if they're not reserved. So they do talk about the kind of gender mm-hmm. hypocrisies of the day. Yeah. But yeah, ultimately, a lot of stuff outweighs these little potential feminist moments. A lot of this seems like it's really rooted in legal systems of the day. What Pamela sort of knows her rights are and the the sort of legal danger she could get herself into Mm. if she sleeps with Mr. B. He's really concerned with issues of libel and what she writes down about him. Mm. So I was thinking about the conversations I have and despite Pamela not being very well educated, if she's already been working as a servant since she was 12, she's been pulled out of school quite early. Most of their conversations, they debate each other over, like, should we have sex or not? They debate, like, lawyers in mm. this, where it's it's very technical and very rhetorical, and they score a lot of really cheap points on those yeah. scores. And Mr. B gets really mad at her because she often has logic on her side, and that's when he sort of goes off on them, where he's like, oh, you hussy, you claim yeah. to be so innocent, but look at you twisting my words and twisting the truth. Turns and, into a debating club, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. That's crazy, isn't it, as well, because that's very disingenuous. That this is not about who can win the debate. This is about, like, one guy... Wanting to sleep with well, someone. abusing his sleep. power. Yeah, and yeah. Both, like, physical and social, and yet... Yeah. That, that Richardson could suggest that she could just somehow, like casuistry her way out of it it's so it's really stupid what about the sexuality in this i mean do we believe that pamela loves mr b because every meeting they have ends up in sort of tears on her side and yelling on his and i didn't know is that supposed to be some sort of indicator of sexual attraction and frustration on both sides that can't quite be articulated because of their class divide I have literally no idea but i also think about his um we talked briefly in the recap about his powers of seduction Mm. and how unbelievable they are. And one contemporary critic said that despite Mr. B supposedly having been a rake and debauching a lot of women in the novel, quote, from his whole behavior towards Pamela, one should be apt to think him the merest novice in the world. Mm. So basically he's, he's claiming to be an expert. He bungles this so badly that he's not even a journeyman cocksmith at this point. This is a bungle, isn't it? This is a bungle, yeah. yeah. And at Marina. I never made that mistake. Yeah, exactly, yeah. First rule in the book, mate. Maybe he's good at chatting up. Socialite chicks. Socialite wenches. Yeah, not not this. Uh, Don't least... think you call socialites wenches. That debutante wench. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he's good with the debutantes, not so good with serving wenches. It's, it was all that sort of code of the day where they'd be like, oh, Mr. B, tap, tap with their fans. Exactly, and yeah, like, yeah. And he's like, I know what that means. It yeah. means you're a goer. And then Pamela hasn't got a fan, so he's just like, I literally have no idea what this woman's like. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Mrs. Jervis? Uh, is she evil? I think I, I, I like your reading. You don't know whether Mrs. Jervis is intentionally aiding Mr. B or mm-hmm. if she's just somehow an imbecile who is just... <laughs> kind of keeps inadvertently getting Pamela into these compromising situations. Uh, yeah, we don't know if she is actually working on behalf of Mr. B. I just want to see young love blossom. <laughs> she's, got, she's got her own agenda. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> but it's more about whether she's genuinely setting up these situations, like him hiding in the cupboard, if she had actually, like, pre-conspired. Yeah. Again, him hiding in the cupboard, was he going to stay there all night while they yeah. slept? What, what would have initially been... 
pervy delight would have very quickly become pretty boring, I imagine. <laughs> a pervy delight? Even the most committed of perverts wouldn't be like, eh, do I want to be stuck in a closet? Like exactly, that's what I'm saying. Ooh, this is going to be all hot under the uh, bodkin, or I don't know what 18th century people wear. Cravat, Yeah, probably. and then like, within half an hour, the candle's blown out, he's just sitting in the cupboard. Candle's <laughs> blown out, that's a very delicate way of putting it. Oh no, I meant... <laughs> I meant Mrs. Jervis and Pamela, but equally, yeah, goes both ways, I suppose. Oh, this book is so filthy. I hate it so much. It, it taps a baser instinct in me. I'm a worse person having read this. So I have some advice, which maybe I shouldn't be saying, but I'm going to give you all permission to hate a book. It's okay to hate a book. I don't want you walking away thinking that this podcast means you have to find something lovable in every text. But what I will say is that hate is really productive, so you and I have students that feel far more willing to talk about and analyze books that they really dislike, mm. rather than ones that they like. It's often, um, you might be too close to something that you like. Hate is productive in that you can articulate what is it that doesn't work for you. So our clue to the next episode, we are bumping up against the 21st century. We haven't quite got there, but this is our latest text to date. It is the first text by a woman of color, and it contains a recipe for banana jam. Please write into our email with any suggestions for books you want us to read, any facts, any disagreements. We would love for people to argue with us or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. And please subscribe, especially on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and subscribe on your phone if you can because that apparently is worth more points. Just the algorithms on podcasts are absolute crazy, yeah. nightmares. Just try, try to help us out whatever way you can by subscribing. I subscribed on the special podcast horn phone that we introduced last <laughs> week. So. If Daniel can do it. <laughs> Tech phone Daniel, yeah. you guys can do it. All right. Thank you guys uh, for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. We'll be back in two weeks. I still don't have a good sign-off. So you and on. XOXO, Abby and Daniel. Let's come back, isn't it? Anyway, the end. Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.